The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so we have been looking at the idea of uh, morality, or sometimes called virtue, or sometimes just called kindness, or whatever word you prefer to use. Um, Maybe just sila is sometimes nice to use because uh, sometimes it's interesting when you try to translate from one language to another one. It can be very hard to really fully get the meaning of the original because the original has a certain context in that language and there may not be a matching word in English. In fact, it is always the case that a word in one language never matches 100% with an, a word in the uh, language you're trying to translate into. So it is not going to find an exact match. Uh, so sometimes when you know a few Pali words, they can be handy. Yeah, you know sila, you know samadhi, you know a few words like that can be very useful because uh, it kind of broadens your understanding a little bit. Uh, and uh, the word sila, as I mentioned before on these retreats, it's, it doesn't mean morality, uh, but it means almost like habit. Uh, yeah, It means like a very broad range of things that you do our whole being in a sense, all our habits, the way we look at the world, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act, uh, all of this can be included in sila. And in some cases in the suttas, even samadhi is included in sila, goes all the way up to samadhi. So all the meditation that we do, the, you know, the mindfulness of breathing, because this is also part of the idea of purifying the mind. And if you purify things, uh, it is part of your conduct, how you act, how you think about the world, your purity as a person. So sila is very, very broad sometimes, and it's a very beautiful term. It's not really covered by morality means, okay, don't do anything bad. It's much more than that. Virtue, virtue is kind of a bit old-fashioned. It sounds a bit, <laughs> I don't know, it's, it, it um, sounds a bit like some kind of Victorian age word, yeah, virtuous. And so we don't fully have the kind of vocabulary sometimes that is suited. So uh, anyway, so we're looking at sila, and uh, this is, we have looked at right action and right speech, factor number three and four on the Noble Eightfold Path. So I've got good news, we're now almost coming to the first halfway to the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, I'm not sure if that's good news or bad news, but if you put it into practice, it's good news. Uh, if you don't put it into practice, then it's kind of neutral. So I'm um, going to carry on a little bit more about uh, virtue. Now we're moving into the, slowly moving into the realm of the mental virtue. And uh, this next part here is uh, virtue in a kind of slightly more elevated sense. It's not as obvious why this next one here is virtue. But it is part of the training of a monastic, and it can be incorporated into one's practice as a layperson as well. Uh, and um, in fact, this is what we're doing here on the retreat to some extent. So this is what it has in the next part here. They avoid injuring plants and seeds. They eat in one part of the day, abstaining from eating at night and at the wrong time. They avoid dancing, singing, music, and seeing shows. They avoid beautifying and adorning themselves with garlands, perfumes, and makeup. They avoid high and luxurious beds. They avoid receiving gold and money, raw grain, raw meat, women and girls, male and female, 
slaves, <laughs> goats and sheep, chickens and pigs, elephants, cows, horses, mares and fields and land. They avoid running errands and messages, buying, selling, falsifying weights, metals and measures, bribery, fraud, cheating and duplicity, mutilation, murder, abduction, banditry, plunder and violence. So this kind of broadens out. I said before that some of the things is missing from right action. It doesn't say everything. You cannot, you know, you know, use all kind of bad dodgy actions like banditry and abduction aren't really mentioned before, but this kind of broadens out the scope for right action here. But what is this really about? And the main thing that this is about, and again, it is, can be useful to compare this to other versions of the same sutta, and if you compare this with a parallel version found in Chinese translation, uh, you find it is missing some of these parts. Uh, and the part that is missing uh, is uh, the part that starts with uh, avoiding running errands and messengers, uh, buying and selling, falsifying weights, metals, and all of this stuff. That's actually missing from the version in Chinese. Uh, and that's kind of interesting, uh, because if you look at those things, uh, they're kind of obvious, right? Uh, you should avoid murder. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> if you have come to this point on the Buddhist path uh, and you have been through the right effort and you haven't kind of sunk in that you're not supposed to murder anyone, it's it's uh, something, something kind of missing there. This, these things are just too obvious. Yeah, bribery, fraud, cheating, and it looks like they don't really fit into the kind of the line here, the sequence of things. You've gone forth. You become a monk or a nun, and then you have to be told you're not going to supposed to be plunder and be violent is kind of uh, the whole thing is out of uh, whack it should if anything it should have been before under right action earlier on uh. so i think it makes really good sense that that is left out uh. and when you take that out uh, because it's just too obvious uh, when you take that out uh, what you are left with uh, you are left with something uh, that says you're supposed to live simply here uh. You're supposed to abandon your wealth. That's essentially, for first of all, you're supposed to abandon uh, entertainment and these kind of things, live simply, and then you're supposed to abandon your wealth. That's the next part there. Yeah. So all this idea about giving up gold and money, uh, uh, rajatajatarupa, raw grain, okay, that's possibly a kind of wealth, not sure about that one. Raw meat, that's another one which is a little bit uncertain. But all the rest of the stuff here, this is basically about owning slaves, yeah, women, girls, and slaves. This is about ownership in those days. Uh, goats and sheep, ownership, chicken, pigs, and elephants, cows, horses, mare, fields, and land. All of this has to do with wealth. That's really where it comes from. Huh? So the idea is that when you become a monastic, you give up all your wealth. That's the idea here. You live simply here. You're supposed, ideally, we'll see that in a second, just to have bowls and robe, yeah? So very, very simple lifestyle is the ideal. And sometimes it's good for monastics to remember this because it's very easy in monastic life, especially when you live in one monastery for a long period of time. And then many monks, monastics do that these days. It's easy to accumulate things and you end up with lots of stuff. But this is kind of the original ideal very simple lifestyle and um, so I'm very happy to be able to teach these things to you because it reminds me of what I'm supposed to be doing here 
Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't have any sheep and chickens, but uh, you know, I, I might have other things maybe, which might kind of be, be a bit too much. The simple life is the idea here, giving things up. Uh, we saw before that when you enter the monastic life, yeah, you, ent- you give up all your wealth, all your boga, boga kanda. It was uh, translated as wealth, but it really means ownership. Yeah? Anything you own, boga is stuff that you have as boga. Give it all up. And then, then you don't start accumulating it after you ordain. That's kind of not the point. So, uh, and this is uh, very useful, even for lay people, that can be useful to remember. Yeah, Keep things reasonably simple. Uh, don't overdo things. Uh, and, um, yeah, and uh, then we have all of these other important rules here. We have the rules, all of these rules are, of course, part of the ten precepts, yeah? And uh, you can see, sometimes it is argued, that what about monastics? There's no rules in the Patimokha that say that monastics have to keep the eight precepts even. It's not actually mentioned there, but here it is in the gradual training. And of course, if you want to train as a person, uh, then the training is not found in the Patimokha precepts. The training is actually found in the suttas. So more important than the Patimokha precepts are actually the suttas. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Patimokha precepts are a bare minimum. They are, you know, of course you have to keep those. But this is really what the training is about. This is the real vinaya. Vineti is the Pali word. You train a horse. In the suttas it's called vineti. It's the same word as vinaya. One is a verb, the other one is a noun. This is, the, this is the real training here. So these precepts are part and parcel of what it means to be a monastic. Yeah? And also part and parcel of what you are doing now. Yeah? One of the great things about going on a retreat and living on eight precepts is that you are very close to what it means to be a monastic. Yeah? So if you're enjoying this, you'll enjoy the monastic life. Yeah? That's, what <laughs> that's what it means. Yeah? Because they are very closely related to each other. Yeah? And uh, so the only difference is that, okay, you can go back home afterwards, whereas we cannot, that's the only difference. Uh, But uh, basically you have an idea of what it means to be a monastic. And you don't use much money either when you are on retreat. It's very, very similar. Become like a samanera or samaneri in a monastery here. So um, basically about not entertainment, yeah, obviously the big one, they're not worrying so much about the body, no need to beautify and adorn the body with makeup and perfumes and all these kind of things. You sleep simply, you are used to all of these things anyway, these are all the standard things, avoid a high and luxurious bed. Mm. Actually, my, my bed is pretty comfortable here, I have to say, but it's probably it's within, the, within reason. Huh? <laughs> and avoiding injuring plants and seeds. And that's an interesting one, the avoiding the injury of plants and seeds. And it's one of those very tricky rules. And you wonder whether, where it comes from, why is it there? There's a Patimoka rule for the monks, uh, number 11 of the Pachitya rules. Pachitya means you have to confess if you commit an offense against that rule. Uh, it's only confession and then you finish. It's not very kind of bad or anything like that. Uh, but why is there this rule against plants? Do plants feel anything? If you walk on the grass, does the grass shout, get off me? <laughs> it's painful. <laughs> 
that what happens if you pluck a flower in a field somewhere does a flower complain that these oh these human beings they are really they are nasty they keep on plucking us in the fields is that what happens if you make have a, in our monastery we have to have fire breaks it's very important in western australia and it's important here as well yeah obviously all of australia pretty much except i don't know about the tropics but anyway it's really important so if you make a fire break do the trees complain and um, it's a very tricky area it says in those rules, it says, well, the people at the time thought that plants are one faculty life. They have one faculty, the faculty of feeling. Is that really the case? Here it says you shouldn't be injuring. And I don't know if it's the case. I don't really know what the truth of plants is. It's one of those very, very tricky areas. And there is some interesting research being done these days on plants, whether they have consciousness or not. Do they feel things? And there is some research which seems to be pointing in the direction that plants have a kind of volition, where they turn away from pain and these kind of things. It's very fascinating here. So I used to be, I used to be very sure of myself that no plants, they don't feel anything. This is just an ancient kind of idea. But I'm not so sure anymore. It's kind of fascinating to see how you uncertain many things are, and how you have to have an open mind, and you have to be able to change your ideas over time. So maybe there is some truth to this idea that even injuring plants, you're actually causing pain in beings. I don't know anymore. It's very hard to really to be sure about these things. And there are certain things about plants that they have in common with human beings. They have a, a metabolism, for example. They metabolize, and this is kind of one of the basic facts of life. What what is what is it that makes life life? Well, it's this metabolism. It's very complicated chemical processing of things that we that we do as human beings. So that is what all of that is about. It's really about simplicity, yeah? Keeping a simple life, uh, not being distracted by all the things of the world, uh, not worrying so much about what you look like and all of that, uh, just being kind of uh, incognito. Uh, and, um, but it is a bit like that, yeah? Because when, we, when you dress up and you kind of put on makeup and you make sure your hair is all nice and everything is really wonderful, uh, and I remember what I used to be like when I was a layperson. It's a long time ago now, but I, I still have a vague memory of kind of past life as a layperson. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, sometimes you become very vain. Yeah? You're very concerned about what you look like and how you dress and all these kind of things. Uh, and there's something about that. And of course, that makes you a bit self-conscious because, you know, other people might be looking at you. And the whole thing is just kind of unpleasant. But there's something about when you give up, give that up, and you come on the retreat, you just wear white. Yeah, some of you wear white. It's wonderful to see that. Or if you don't wear white, you wear something which is kind of just baggy or kind of ordinary, nothing fancy. And there's something, it's like you fade away a little bit. You don't stand out anymore. You don't say, I am here, look at me. You stop saying those things. And, uh, and there's something very beautiful about that because it's less stressful. It's more ease. You can just be whoever you are. Yeah? And that is very helpful for samadhi because if you have a strong sense of ego, a strong sense of self, it blocks you in your samadhi practice. Because that sense of self needs to be justified, it needs to be supported, it needs to be defended against other things. You think about yourself more, you become more self-conscious, all of these kind of things. And that's very bad in, um, for meditation. You know, one of the wonderful things that I always find when you see the people who are really enlightened, like people who are gone a long way on this path, one of my favorite monks, Ajahn Ganha, 
they are so unselfconscious. Yeah, they're like a little child. A little child is often very unselfconscious. This is one of the things you love about little children. They will, in the big crowd, they will suddenly talk to the mummy as if no one is there. Yeah, and they say something loud. Oh, mummy, look at that funny man in the corner. Be quiet! Don't say it. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> but this is, in a way, it's beautiful because everyone thinks it, but no one dares to say it, right? Everyone thinks, yeah, that man is really funny, but only the child will say it. <laughs> and so there's something beautiful childlike and become an arahant yeah or you've gone a long way on the path you become a bit like that you're very unselfconscious you don't really care if people are around if they're looking at you you're completely natural you can see these things you can get this feeling that there's no sense of self there it's all kind of disappeared so this all leans in that direction yeah this direction of not being concerned about yourself not caring what you wear or how you look and all of these kind of things yeah so this is, uh, it's, all, it's all very useful. And this is one of the reasons we keep the eight precepts. And this is one of the reasons, hopefully, why you enjoy keeping those precepts as well. And you kind of find that useful. Huh? So these are all part and parcel of the idea of uh, virtue, kindness, morality. Now, my very good friend, Ajahn Nisarano, he came to me and said, "Oh, there are these verses you have to read out. Yeah, I got this really, I got this really nice verses that you you have, must read them out. And if you don't read them out, I'm gonna say nothing because that's up to you." He said, "But <laughs> but uh, no." And he he's right. I first of all, I kind of I sort of I was busy doing something else, but I thought, "Okay, have, have, let's have a quick look at these verses." I thought to myself. And these are verses found in the Terra Gata. These are the verses of the senior monks. And these are spoken by a monk called Silava. I don't know if that's his real name, because it's a bit too much of a coincidence that his name happens to be Silava, which means the one who is virtuous. That's the name of the person. And then all he talks about is Sila throughout the... Uh, <laughs> so I think usually the name come, the verses come first, and the name is kind of invented afterwards to fit with the verses. <laughs> But this is the name of this monk who is called Silava, according to this. Yeah? And he, it's all about virtue. So because we're now coming towards the end of the section on virtue, I thought maybe this was a good time to just read it out for you, so you can see what you, what you think about this. Silava. One should train just in virtue. For in this world, when virtue is cultivated and well-trained, it provides all success. Desiring three kinds of happiness, praise, prosperity, and to delight in heaven after passing away, the wise should protect virtue. The well-behaved have many friends because of their self-restraint, but one without virtue of bad conduct drives away their friends. A person of bad behavior has ill repute and infamy. A person of virtue always has a good reputation, fame, and praise. Virtue is the starting point and foundation, the mother at the head of all good qualities. Therefore, you should purify virtue. Virtue is a boundary and a restraint, an enjoyment for the mind, the place where all the Buddhas cross over. Therefore, you should purify virtue. Virtue is the matchless power. Virtue is the ultimate weapon. 
Virtue is the best ornament. Virtue is a marvelous coat of armor. Virtue is a mighty bridge. Virtue is the unsurpassed scent. Virtue is the best perfume that floats to all directions. Virtue is the best provision. Virtue is the unsurpassed supply for a journey. Virtue is the best vehicle that takes you in all directions. In this life they are criticized. After passing away they are unhappy in a lower realm. A fool is unhappy everywhere because they are not endowed with virtue. In this life they are famous. After passing away they are happy in heaven. A person with understanding is happy everywhere because they are endowed with virtue. Virtue is best in this life, but person with understanding is supreme among gods and humans, conquering with virtue and understanding here. Wow, virtue. <laughs> it's pretty awesome, isn't it? That's pretty kind of amazing. And um, many of these things are kind of uh, found in the suttas. Yeah, the, in the suttas, the idea that virtue is like an ornament. Yeah, we find that generosity is an ornament of the mind. But of course, virtue is the same. It's like the ultimate weapon, <laughs> a matchless power because it stops bad qualities from arising. It's a coat of armor. A coat of armor is like a, like a, um, you know, this kind of, the knights of the Middle Ages in Europe, they had this kind of metal cladding, yeah, as a coat of armor. Uh, and then they kind of stopped uh, any bad things from entering uh, within. Uh, it's a boundary and a restraint. Uh, yeah, and it's an enjoyment for the mind, right? It's not just a coat of armor, but it's actually an enjoyment for the mind. You feel good if you're virtuous. Uh, it is the place where the Buddhas crossed over. Uh, the Buddhas were virtuous. You're following in the footsteps of the Buddha. The Buddha's walking in front. We are coming behind. So, uh, yeah, and so it, on and on it goes. If you want to have a look at this, it's in the chapter of 12s in the Terra Gata. And this is a translation by Bhante Sujato and Jessica Walton. And uh, uh, you find this translation on Sutta Central. If you go to suttacentral.net, you will find it there. And you can have a look at it if you like. Very beautiful. So thank you for that, uh, Ajane Sarano. And uh, now I will give it back to you. Yep. <laughs> okay. So uh, that is the um, section on uh, morality. And now we come to the section on uh, contentment. Uh, they are content with robes to look after the body and arms food to look after the belly. Wherever they go, they set out taking only these things. They are like a bird. Wherever the bird flies, uh, wherever it flies, wings are its only burden. In the same way, a mendicant is content with robes to look after the body and arms food to look after the belly. Wherever they go, they set out, taking only these things. When they have this entire spectrum of noble ethics, they experience a blameless happiness inside themselves. 
So this is the uh, short section on contentment. And um, the uh, idea with contentment is to take virtue one step further. Yeah? Uh, because if you are content, it means that you have less desires, uh, you have less potential for ill will and for uh, desire and aversion. Uh, so you're moving here from the kind of external morality of speech and body, moving towards the morality of the mind. Contentment is part of the morality of mind. And this is why we are now kind of see gradually moving along the path. Uh, contentment here, the way this is phrased, is also like the livelihood. Yeah, the livelihood of a monastic is just the ball and the robe. So this is also like the fifth factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, right livelihood, samma ajiva, is also what this is about to some extent. So the importance of contentment on the Buddhist path. And um, uh, this is the kind of, again, the monastic ideal, yeah? Very simple life, robes and alms food and nothing else. And you can live on these kind of things, especially if you are in a Buddhist country or you are in a country where uh, people who are live this kind of lifestyle are supported. Then you can live like this. You don't need anything else. If the climate is right and all of these kind of things. And this is all that you take with you, like a bird with the wings. One wing is the ball, the other wing is the other robes. And wherever the bird flies, this, these are its only burden. Don't have any other burdens. Things are burdensome. The less few things you have, the lighter you feel. The easier it is to go and leave at any time and just move. And you leave nothing behind. Adam Brahm always says that at the monasteries in Thailand, when he stayed, whenever you leave the monastery, you're not allowed to put anything in the store. Yeah? Whatever you own, you have to take it with you. That means that you end up throwing away or getting rid of a lot of things. Yeah? Or you never get them in the first place. Because it's just too difficult to carry, you can't carry everything with you. You have to have very few things. So you end up and, you know, maybe you have a lot to start with and then you get, wow, this is too heavy. And you kind of get rid of things as you walk along. You have less and less. And then you find out how little you can get on, you can get, get by with very little. And this is kind of the idea here. A very simple life. And you are, not only do you have a simple life, but you are content with that. You don't want anything more. You understand the kind of the beauty of having a very simple life. This is kind of the idea here. Having little and being content with having very little. That's the idea. Very, very simple. And um, so this is kind of, so this is, a, you know, of course, this is the monastic life. Uh, but this is kind of the uh, idea here. Yeah, and because things in the world are burdensome. Uh, the more things you have, you have to look after them. You have to sort them out. You have to kind of pay for whatever it is that you have to pay for. And the less of these things you have, the less burdens in your mind. And the more you can just focus on the things in life that matter for the spiritual path. Just focus on those things. And when you look at the suttas and see how the way contentment is used in the suttas, it is used often very powerfully in many places. For example, the thought of contentment is one of the Mahapurisa Vitaka. Yeah? Mahapurisa, the thoughts of a great person. One of the thoughts of a great person, yeah, contentment. And uh, other things there, thoughts of a great person are things like uh, having few desires, which goes very closely with the idea of um, 
contentment. Uh, yeah, and uh, so these are very. Uh, very profound things, the idea of contentment. And the deeper your contentment is, the more access you have to deep meditation. Deep meditation relies on the idea of contentment. The mind, which doesn't want anything, happy in the present moment, not wanting anything else or anything less than what you have already. Be contented with what you have. And of course, if you use some of these reflections that we had the other day, the idea of the borrowed goods, everything in the world is borrowed anyway, you're going to have to let go of it sooner or later, that those kind of thoughts lead to contentment with few things. You don't want to be attached to the things of the world, because the more attachment you have to those things, the more suffering you will have as a consequence in the future. And as a layperson, you can also live a bit like this. You can be contentment with what you content with what you have. So if you have ten cars, don't want eleven cars. Want only ten. Yeah. If you have uh, uh, whatever it is that you have, just be happy with what it is. No need to add anything extra to what you have. This is one of those uh, things. And. Um, and sometimes it's hard, right? I, I, I know from my own experience that sometimes it's people who, who are kind of well off and doing very well in their life, and sometimes you hold on to the things that you own, yeah, when you have a lot. And I remember many, some years ago we were trying to get, we were looking at land to establish the monastery in Norway to see if we can find a good place to establish monastery here. And we kind of went to some of the big landowners in Norway. There are people who own really big parcels of land in prime places. So we went to them and we said, oh, you know, we would like to kind of just buy a tiny corner of your property. You've got 100,000 acres. Maybe if we can buy 10 of those 100,000, how much is that? That's like 0.01% or something. And the response we got, no, no, we don't want to sell anything. We only want to buy more. <laughs> <laughs> That was the attitude. Yeah, you, you, you got so much, but you are so holding on to it uh, that you can't really let go of it. Uh, yeah. And um, so this is kind of really, it's really hard. And I, uh, yeah, I sometimes I tell my mother, my mother lives in two different places. Uh, she lives in a place on the south coast of Norway, and she has a nice apartment in Oslo. Uh, so I tell her, get rid of one of those places. What do you want two places for? Oh no, I have to have both places. And she travels back and forth between the two and stays there and stays there. I say, it's just a hassle to have so much stuff. Get rid of it. No, she can't get rid of it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. What can you say? You know, this is kind of it's a lifetime of habit. Yeah, she's in, my mother is in her 80s now, so you can't really, you're not going to change anything. So, okay, fine, do what, do what you want. But you can see how, you know, you, get, you hold on to these things in this world. Yeah, they are important to you. And then you forget that when you die, it's going to be more difficult because of all the stuff that you have. So... Contentment, yeah, one of these beautiful uh, qualities. And one of my favorite verses, this is again from the Dhammapada, again. Uh, and uh, this is a really beautiful verse. Uh, this verse about um, uh, uh, um, how does it go? Yeah, I can't remember. I can only remember this one line now, actually. Uh, and the one line is that contentment is the greatest wealth. Uh, yeah, contentment is the greatest wealth. Uh, and it's so. Hard, you know, why is that the case? How can contentment be the greatest wealth? How is that possible? 
And the answer, of course, is the reason why we have wealth, the reason why we want more always, uh, is because we can find satisfaction. Yeah? If I get that, that, then I'll be satisfied. If I get that, then I'll be happy. Yeah? And it turns out, no, you're not happy. There's still more to be desired. Yeah. And there's always more that you can want. I have a really big house, but I would like a few thousand acres of land. Yeah, land is important. You're never satisfied, regardless of how much you have. And so the answer is the only way to be satisfied is to be content with what you have. Then you have the highest wealth because you don't want anymore. That is the nature of the highest wealth. It's a beautiful saying. And it turns the idea of understanding what wealth really is kind of a bit on its head. And it's a beautiful, beautiful little thing. So contentment. Yeah. So be content in your life, regardless of where you're at, what you have. Make that uh, enough, uh, sufficient, uh, no need for anything more. Be content with the relationship you have. Yeah, This relationship may not be perfect, but good enough. Uh, sometimes you get into another relationship and it's worse than the one you had. And then you wonder, what on earth did I do? And then you have seen this. This happens quite regularly, I think. Yeah, We're always trying to find the grass is always greener on the other side. But actually, no, it wasn't. After all, it just looked greener. It was an illusion. Uh, the grass was worse on the other side. Uh, <coughs> artificial grass, yeah, yeah. <laughs> On, only if you look into the, over the fence, into the monastery, that's where the grass really is greener. Yeah? <laughs> so make sure, <laughs> look at the right kind of grass. <laughs> so, and then you have this beautiful thing that summarizes all of these things. And now we're coming to the end of the ordinary virtues. And uh, then it says, uh, when you have this entire spectrum, uh, sila kanda, this whole aggregate of virtue, yeah, when you have all of this, uh, they experience a blameless happiness uh, inside themselves, anavajja sukha. You're living blamelessly, uh, and that leads to happiness. Yeah? And uh, so this is uh, kind of the beginning of happiness. The first time we talk about happiness on the path, this is the happiness that comes through living with kindness, living with care. That is the beginning. And, while, and it's almost like a negative kind of happiness. It's the absence of suffering that it makes you happy. So is that real happiness if you're just absent from suffering? Well, yes, it is. This is one of the most important aspects of happiness is precisely the absence of suffering. Absence of suffering and happiness are the, it's the same thing. You can't really separate them. Huh? Why is the ending of everything yeah, happiness in Buddhism? Because it's the absence of suffering. That's why it is happiness, really. So this is the beginning of that absence of things that destroy your happiness. Uh, yeah, you have all of this full spectrum of ethics, uh, and you feel happy inside of yourself. Uh. There's two things to this. One is that... Um, the lack of remorse that we have. And that lack of remorse is what then enables us to take our meditation further. But it's also the more positive joy yeah, that comes as well. So it's both an absence of suffering and also the positive joy that comes from being kind. Uh, reflecting back on the good things that you have done. Yeah? And then as you do that, you actually feel something bubbling inside of you. It is the happiness that comes from these things. So uh, if you're not feeling that happiness yet, 
if you're not feeling the joy that comes from these things, occasionally feel joyful, it is really just because you need to continue, carry on, uh, purifying it more, uh, asking yourself, how can I do this even better? Uh, and as you do that, uh, these things eventually they start to arise uh, because you are living in the right way. Uh. So the happiness of Buddhism, anavajja sukha, blameless happiness, uh, the beginning of happiness. Uh. I should maybe add that there is one kind of contentment that is bad, bad contentment. And the bad contentment is the contentment with the partial results on the Buddhist path. Yeah, so you say, yeah, I'm keeping the five precepts, good enough. Not going to go any further. That's bad contentment. Yeah, you have to keep on practicing. Never be content with the results of the path until you reach the very end. Because as long as you have partial results, then you will backslide eventually, and uh, eventually you will uh, not reach the end of what this is all about. So don't be content in that sense. Uh, always try to purify yourself a bit further, take the meditation deeper, experience all the bliss that come from this path. Uh, all right. Uh, so... Um, mm. So now we have looked at the first five factors. Now we're going to move on to factor number six. Factor number six is the Samapadana, Samavayama, right effort. And uh, that is normally begins with sensory strength. Sensory strength is one of the most important aspects of right effort. Yeah, so we have already started to purify the mind by being content, and now we're going to take that purification further. How can we purify the mind? And this is going to be the content of the next few sessions that we have today and all of tomorrow. We're going to talk about the idea of how to purify the mind in daily life, on retreats, or any time, basically, how we can get rid of these impurities. And this is very, very important, because if you purify the mind, then the rest of the virtue tends to fall into place, right? Obviously, mind is pure, you act according to that purity, and then everything tends to fall into place. So purifying the mind is good, yeah? It is the path forward. So this is a very important part. It's called the Indriya Sangvara Sila. For those of you who are keen on Pali, I often when I teach, I often find, especially people with a Sri Lankan background, they say, oh, I don't understand the English term, just tell me what's in Pali here. And then they say in Pali, say, oh yeah, thank you, that's wonderful, because they know the Pali, but they don't really know the English terminology. So sometimes I think, okay, let's use Pali more. Indriya Sangvara Sila, right? You know Indriya Sangvara Sila, Ranjani? Yeah? <laughs> okay, so this is... <laughs> This is the idea, Santutti and Indriya Sangvarasila. Santutti is contentment, or just Tutti. And then the, so, uh, so let's have a look at this. And this is the most basic idea of right effort. Yeah? The right effort is divided into four parts. And the first part of the right effort is to uh, avoid bad qualities from arising. Yeah, this is one aspect of right effort. Another one is when a bad quality has arisen, it's how to overcome it. Second aspect of right effort. So this Indriya Sangvara Sila is that first part. Did I get that sequence right? I think so, anyway. Well, well, yeah. Void first, yeah, yeah. 
So this is, uh, so this is about avoiding bad qualities from arising. Yeah? This is uh, Indriya Sangvarasila. So let's have a look at this uh, formula and then uh, explain it. We're going to take a long time to explain it because it's a very deep and involved formula to understand properly here. So when you see a sight with your eyes, you don't get caught up in the features and the details. If the faculty of sight were left unrestrained, bad, unskillful qualities of desire and aversion would become overwhelming. For this reason they practice restraint, protecting the faculty of sight and achieving its restraint. So this is why it's called sense restraint. You see the word restraint there yeah, being used all the time. The Pali word is sangvara, and sangvara means something like restraint. Yeah, it's it's ballpark. It's not entirely. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's close enough to be an acceptable translation. Huh? But uh, we have to be very careful here because the word restraint in English has a very clear idea of willpower. Yeah, when you, for example, if you restrain a child. What do you do when you restrain the child? You don't allow it to run around. You hold it back. Yeah, you're using willpower. So restraint or a police restrain somebody from doing a bad action. Well, they're not going to allow the person just to move on. Restraint means precisely the opposite: holding back by power, by force. It always implies force. So we have to be careful here not to read too much into this idea of restraint. And one of the things I want to point out is that in Buddhism, sometimes we can use a little bit of willpower, but most of the time we use wisdom instead. We use wisdom power. This is Ajahn Brahm's kind of coinage, wisdom power. And it's a very beautiful coinage of terms because it, it, it shows you that wisdom is far more powerful than the will. Yeah, the wisdom is where the real power is. So let's try to be wise about things. Let's try to understand what the problem is. Let's try to understand the pathway so we can bypass those problems instead of walking straight into them. Yeah, this is what wisdom power is about. Understanding that it is a problem and then understanding the strategy or the tactic to overcome that problem. This is what wisdom is about. Wisdom is such a powerful thing, yeah, obviously, this, because this is what takes you all the way to the end of the path, ultimately. So let's begin, start from the beginning here. When you see a sight with your eye, yeah, what is that sight? Well, that sight is like this, yeah, this is the sight. You see lots of stuff in that picture. You see a sight with the eye every time, that's a lot of the time, especially the eye, the eye faculty is a very dominant faculty in human beings. They say that 80% of our sensory input or something like that comes through the eyes. And then of course the hearing is quite important, the bodily sensations are quite important, but tasting and smelling are very minor. Yeah, It's only when you eat that you taste and smell pretty much, the rest of the time it's kind of dormant, it doesn't really do very much. But uh, sight, sight is incredibly important. Uh, and a lot of ill will and uh, desire comes, arises through seeing things that are, wow, wonderful and uh, ah, disgusting here. Yeah. So um, you don't get caught up in the feature and details. Uh, um, and this is the nimitta and the vyanjana. Vyanjana is the detail, feature, nimitta can mean the whole picture. Yeah, so the whole thing that you see or any detail in what you see. Yeah. 
Yeah, so whatever that might be. So if you see a person, it can be you like the whole person, or it can be an aspect of that person that you like or don't like. Yeah. I'm looking at Ken now. It doesn't mean that I have any kind of particular <laughs> like or dislike. Yeah, I'm, I'm equanimous. That's the highest praise we can have. I'm equanimous. When I <laughs> no, I'm very happy when I see Ken, but not because of that kind of attraction, yeah? because it's simply because it's nice to see good people. So I, I like to be here with that. That's, that's the only thing. That's the right kind of way of thinking about people, yeah? to be joyful that you are with good people. Yeah? And this is very different from this idea of sense restraint. Yeah? Sense restraint means you see someone and you are attracted and you give rise to desire. You want that person somehow. That is what desire is about. Yeah? But being happy because you see a good person, that's a very different thing. In fact, that is a positive kind of uh, State, yeah. Wow, I'm so happy that I have such good friends. That is a marvelous thing to think. Yeah. So what we want to avoid is the desires where why we we kind of want this for me or whatever it is. So whatever it is within that realm of sight that you like is what is included here. And then it says you get caught by this. What does it mean to get caught? And what it means is that you you know when you see something. And then you like it, and your mind stops there because you like it. It's like you can imagine you walk along the street, yeah, and you are a bit hungry, and you look into a shop which is selling some delicious food, maybe some wonderful cake or something, your favorite pastry in that shop. And you walk past, and you're just able to kind of oh, go beyond, not to kind of be lured into that shop to buy something. You just use your willpower you shouldn't be using willpower but you do because you, you don't know what else to do so you use your willpower you walk past the shop but then that image of that cake lingers in your mind you can't get it out of your mind yeah you know that feeling yeah the things linger in your mind that lingering is being caught by it you're not able to go with the flow go with the mindfulness let things be because if we don't go with the flow if we lose mindfulness then we get caught very easily. The next thing we see then gives rise to another desire or aversion because we lose in the mindfulness. We lose in the ability to react appropriately to the world around us. You don't want to get caught by things. Yeah, See a person you don't like and then you, oh, I've got to avoid this person. Yeah, And then you, and then you kind of walk, you go to the opposite side of the street. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that ever happens to you, but uh, we should, we should, should ideally this shouldn't happen. Yeah, but sometimes people do this. You hear about this. You, okay, so you avoid this person, and then that image of the person lingers in your mind. Uh, this is the aversion. Oh, don't, don't want to meet them. I don't like this person. Uh, ideally, we don't have those reactions, but you know, sometimes it is like that. Uh, and so then that leads to this other, the opposite, the aversion side of these things. Uh, this is what it means to be caught by things. Uh, you lose your ability to be mindful, to flow through the day. Yeah? And you, are, uh, you are become a prisoner of these images uh, that enter your mind. Uh, um, what is the, I'm thinking, what is the Pali again, or for this one, get, getting ca caught by these things? Uh, um, or Sarana has all the latest tech to find out the Pali and everything here, yeah. yeah. What is it, Chinese? Can you look at the Chinese? Yeah, uh, no, 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 we don't need to know the Chinese. Uh, yeah. Ah. Mm, gahi. Nimita gahi. Gahi is the word, so you get caught, gahi. catching. Gahi. Nimita gahi. Not nimita gahi, not caught by the nimita. Yeah. 
Gahi, yeah. Gahana means to grasp, yeah, to get caught, yeah. Okay. Thank you, Ajahn Eterno. Yeah. Without you, I don't know where, what we would do. We would, <laughs> we would, <laughs> we would know Gahi. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you see the danger in these things, yeah? And of course, these things can become very powerful sometimes. Strong desires, strong things. You see the danger in getting caught up because you lose your mindfulness. And especially if it is a negative reaction to something, something you don't, don't like to see. Just talking about people, yeah? That aversion that you have or don't want to see that person can very quickly go into negativity, to upset, to anger, to ill will very easily. Yeah? Because the one thing that leads to most ill will, like we mentioned the other day, is usually other people. Other people are both the most delightful and also the most difficult thing in life for most people. So uh, we avoid these things, we avoid these powerful emotions from arising, especially ill will is really bad, but also excessive desires. Yeah? It is not that, uh, it's not useful in life to have that. Yeah? So this is what this is about. So. Uh, so how do we do this? Yeah, and uh, so what he says here is that if we leave the faculty unrestrained, then all these bad qualities of desire and aversion they overwhelm you. Yeah, you lose your ability to you don't your mind is out of control. It's just running all over the place, and completely you know you lose your mindfulness, you lose your clarity. You don't know up from down and back from front anymore, and you have a problem. For this reason, you practice the restraint. You protect the eye faculty, or the faculty of sight. You achieve its restraint. So, what, how does this work? Well, the, the, the clue is in here. Yeah, you protect the eye faculty. That's the first thing. Yeah? So the first thing is to be aware of what is going on. So you have to have that uh, when you come to that shop with the beautiful food inside. Uh, you have to have awareness of what is happening here. Yeah? You have to see how your mind leans towards that food uh, and how it kind of wants to grasp onto that. Uh. Food is a small thing, but the biggest thing in life is people, yeah? both in terms of desire and aversion. Uh. So you watch that mind and you uh, are, know that this is happening here. Yeah? And so that awareness is the first thing here. Yeah? And if you have sufficient awareness, uh, then you can, the second thing then is to have a strategy to ensure that that sight doesn't overwhelm the mind. Yeah? It doesn't take over. You have a strategy to overcome the anger, to see the situation in a new light, to think about the person in a new way, uh, whatever it is, and then you avoid the defilements from arising. So this is a two-pronged thing. Awareness, knowing that this is happening, and a strategy to overcome it. And this is such an important thing. There's two things there, and both of those two things are equally important. You have to have both the awareness and the way to overcome it. What, the awareness is just knowing what's going on. The strategy is to remember the Dhamma. Yeah, that's the strategy. You know the Dhamma behind this, so you go, you go in the right direction. It's not, you, if you don't remember the Dhamma, it's not going to help you. You're going to be stuck with that thing regardless. Otherwise, just again, anger arising, anger arising, yeah. more anger arising, <laughs> hatred arising, yeah. killing, killing. Okay, no, wait a minute. Uh, too much mindfulness, not enough wisdom, right? Uh, you, have a, you have a problem there. Uh, there's that famous story that Ajahn Brahm always tells. You know that story Ajahn Brahm tells sometimes about uh, he, there was some wealthy person somewhere that, uh, you know, he 
he, I don't, if, I'm not sure if this is a true story or made up, but maybe partly true. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but there was a story of this um, uh, wealthy person. I think it was in Singapore or something like that. And uh, she lived in this big mansion in Singapore. Uh, and then she had, you know, she had all people working for her and all these kind of things. And she had a guard at the front gate. And then one day she says to the guard, well, okay, I'm going off on a meditation retreat with, I don't know, Ajahn Brahm or whatever. Guard the house, yeah. Don't allow any burglars to, you know, to take. Don't allow any burglars. Be mindful, yeah. And the guard says, "Yes, I've been on the mindfulness course." <laughs> Ajahn Brahm is having a bit of a dig at some of these mindfulness courses, I think. Yeah, and he says, "Be mindful." And yeah, I promise to be mindful. Yeah, while you're away, yeah. You know the story, right? Ajahn, and so she goes off on a retreat. She comes back after I don't know three or four or six days or whatever. And her house is burgled. And she says to the guard, but goodness sake, I told you to be mindful. You said you'd been to the mindfulness course. And the guard says, yeah, I, I, I was mindful, ma'am, I promised. The burglar came and I said, burglar coming, burglar coming. Yeah. And the burglar took out his tools and he kind of broke open the door. Burglar opening the door, burglar opening the door. Yeah. Burglar taking down, taking, opening the safe, opening the safe. Burglar stealing jewelry. I was mindful all the time. Wait a minute. <laughs> Mindfulness is not enough, right? You need to remember the instructions. And this is not just, it sounds like a funny story, it sounds like a joke, but it's not really just a joke, because this is how often meditation is actually taught. Be mindful in daily life. And if you are mindful in daily life, then you will have success in meditation. Mindfulness will give you more mindfulness. That's kind of the idea comes from the idea in the Satipatthana Sutta of Sati Sampajanya. Walking out is mindful, coming back is mindful, eating is mindful, drinking is mindful, talking is mindful. Yeah. But, but why exactly? What is this about? Why should we be mindful in those situations? Uh, very rarely people say anything about that. They say, just be mindful. But there is a reason for why we should be mindful in those situations. It is not enough just to be aware. And the reason why we should be aware in those situations is because it enables us to regulate our mind and our conduct. It enables us to say, wait a minute, the thief really is coming. I better do something. I better call the police, right? <laughs> That's the right thing to do when the thief is coming. It's the, and if you, so we need to do the right thing. Yeah? And when the, that cake in the shop window, that person that you like, is about to steal your mind, yeah? Wait a minute, don't steal my mindfulness. Uh, I want to keep my mindfulness. Uh, and then you are aware and you call upon the Dhamma. You don't call the police, you call the Dhamma hotline. Uh, and you say, please help me, what am I supposed to do now? Uh, and then you use that Dhamma that you have learned in such a way to overcome the problem. This is using wisdom uh, to overcome the problems in the mind. Uh, and. Um, the far by the most important one and the easiest one is to overcome the ill will and the anger when that arises. And of course, in life, there is going to be a lot of situations when anger is prone to arise. Why? Well, because there are lots of people in the world that are, I was going to say, worth getting angry at. But of course, it's never worth getting angry at anyone. But there are people who behave in ways where it is easy to get upset with them because of that behavior. So you learn the strategies, uh, how to overcome anger. How can I see this person in a different way? And this is some of the most important things that we can do as human beings. So we can have compassion and care and metta for every blooming person that we, <laughs> that we meet in this life. Yeah? It is such an important thing. Yeah? 
And that's so wonderful. We don't get angry with people anymore. Yeah. I'm not saying that I never get angry, but I get less angry than I used to. So I'm making progress, yeah, which is good. And each one of us, we should try to make progress on this path in this way. So that anger is the most important thing. And I will give you some more techniques on how to avoid anger later on. I'm just not telling you. I'm setting the scene. Yeah. The other thing that we need to overcome is the strong desires. Yeah, and because that leads away from contentment that we've just been talking about. If you have lots of desire for things, you're not content. If you look at people, yeah, and you kind of get desire for them, well, then you're not content with your husband or wife or what it might be. You, you know, you kind of your mind is kind of going into the world trying to find happiness in other things. So this is really what this path is about: awareness, then the strategy to overcome the problem. Okay, um, so you will notice here that this um, uh, one of the things that he says here, he says that the qualities of desire and aversion become overwhelming here. Anvasaveya, which means they kind of flow in on you, uh, yeah, these things, uh, so they're quite strong. Yeah? So what we're trying to do with sense restraint is to avoid the really the coarser manifestations of these things. Uh, you're not going to be able to eliminate all desire through sense restraint because desire can be very, very subtle. Sometimes it is just about attachment to your body, attachment to the senses, to the ability to see and hear. So this more refined um, aspect of desire is still going to be there. It's really about giving up the, the worst aspects, the really strong things that, that have a very bad impact on your mind. And then later on, through the meditation practice specifically, that's where we give up the refined aspect of desire and aversion. So this is like the first stage. The first stage, actually, all of this, everything here, is about giving up desire and aversion. Every step of this path, you're giving up something. When you decide not to steal, actually, that is already giving up some desire and aversion and ill will, yeah? Because there are certain things you can't do. When you decide to try to have more contentment, again, giving up some desire and aversion. So every stage is more and more refined as we move on. But this is where you're kind of doing a lot of that, uh, the brunt of the work happens during the sense restraint uh, as part of the path. Anyway, I will stop there because uh, then I, next time I can recap, uh, recapitulate a little bit uh, with, the, with the next senses, which is useful, uh, and then we will carry on after that. So... Uh, there you are. That's it for this afternoon. And uh, have a nice cup of tea, whatever it is that you do. And uh, then we'll see you back again at 6.30 this evening. Yeah. This is Pay Respect to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. <laughs>